Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for blessing our time together. We ask that you continue to do so. Open your word to us. Um, Open our ears to hear what you would have to say, not what we want to hear, but what you would have to say. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Andrew, and I'm glad to be here with you. We are still in our series on the startling statements of Jesus. And we finally come to the place where we all wanted to be, where Jesus talks about money, right? You're excited for that. Um, I realize that talking about money, you know, saying the M word at the beginning of a sermon can sometimes be uh, a daunting thing for the listener, especially when it's coming from someone who looks like he just got his driver's license, which I totally get. I totally get. Uh, But you're in luck. The good news is you're not hearing from me. Uh, We're hearing from Jesus. And frankly, frankly, we couldn't do a series like this on Jesus' startling statements without talking about money, because Jesus talks so much about money. But probably not for the reason that many of us often think. He doesn't, not, he doesn't talk about money a lot because it is so evil, because it is so unspiritual, or because it's something that Christians are supposed to avoid altogether. A lot of people have interpreted Jesus that way, but it's not right. The reason Jesus talks so much about money is that it has such potential for good, because it must be handled well by all Christians, and because it is incredibly spiritual. Money is incredibly spiritual. In Jesus' view, there are few things besides your money that give you a better picture, a better window into your very heart and soul. And so it's not surprising in the New Testament, when people meet Jesus, he doesn't just change the way they think about God. He changes the way they think about money. He doesn't just reshape our spiritual reality. He reshapes our financial reality. Because money, according to Jesus, is a powerful tool in his kingdom. It's a very powerful tool in his kingdom. But that being said, we all know that we've all seen how money can be used for tremendous evil. And we've probably all felt, even in our own lives, at one time or another, the corrupting power that money tends to have. We've probably all felt that. But for Jesus, the problem is not money. The problem is not money. The problem is idolatry. It's idolatry. It's the love of money. The problem is when we look to money for our security, when we look to it for our value, when we look to it for our satisfaction and for our significance. Because Jesus understood that as powerful as money is, it is completely unable to bear the burden of human worship, the worship that we have. And we see this in our own lives today. We see this in our culture today, do we not? I mean, with money, you can start a flourishing business that lifts a whole community into financial health. But for money, for the love of money, you will cheat people to get ahead. With money, you can enjoy special things with your family and you can protect them and you can provide for them. But for money, You will neglect them. You will become a workaholic and ignore your family. With money, you can care for the poor in ways that they cannot. But for money, you will exploit the poor. You will take advantage of them. Now, as I say those things, some of you out there are already thinking, man, I'm glad I don't have a lot of money. Otherwise, I'd have to keep listening to this sermon. And again, I I understand that. I get that. Um, But that attitude is the most dangerous thing about money. 
that attitude is the most dangerous thing about money because like many idols in life, you don't have to have a lot of money for it to have a lot of power over you. Don't have to have a lot of it. Think about it. I mean, more than any other idol, greed, the love of money, has the ability to hide itself from our own self-perception. Better than any idol, better than any sin, it hides itself. Uh, When is the last time you said to yourself, you know, I really have too much money? Probably wasn't very recent. When's the last time you heard someone come up to you and say, you know, could you check my attitude about money? Am I, am I right here or not? I mean, it doesn't happen very often. And this is another reason Jesus talks so much about it, because greed sneaks up on you like no other idol. Jesus says, watch out for greed. Deliberately, you must look for it. This is one of the only sins that Jesus says that about. He doesn't say, hey, watch out for adultery, because If you're committing adultery, you know it. You don't wake up one day and say, oh, wait, I'm not married to you. It just doesn't happen. I know, right? It's supposed to be funny, but it just didn't work. Okay, that's great. All that to say, Jesus does say, you must watch out for greed. You must watch out for greed. You might love money more than God. Watch out. Because all we really need, and and we've all done this, all you really need is you have to know one person who has more money than you. And suddenly you're off the hook. A friend, a family member, they have more money. And you're able to say, well, I'm not that rich, therefore I'm not greedy, therefore I don't need to hear what Jesus has to say about this. And Jesus says, not so. Watch out for greed. Greed hides itself from all of us, and this is, this is the most dangerous thing about it. So this morning, if you think, I don't really need to hear what Jesus has to say about money, then you absolutely need to hear what Jesus says about money. We all do. We all need to understand it. We need to understand what God thinks about it, what it is for, how we're using it, where we're investing it in our lives right now. And nobody, nobody has a better grasp on wealth and the use of wealth than our Lord Jesus. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a few minutes. So as we get started, Jesus is teaching us about money this morning, and he's doing it through a story. It's a little unique. He's doing it through a story which we call a parable. And then he's drawing lessons from that story in the text that was just read. So we're going to do the same thing. We're going to examine the parable. It's from Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. You just heard it read. We're going to understand what it's saying, and then we're going to draw lessons from it on how we are supposed to view our money. Okay, so that's where we're going. Now, Jesus, you can read along. I'm going to retell. This is, this is, Jesus begins his story this way. He says, there was this really rich guy he owns an estate. He, he owns his own business, let's say. And he has a money manager. A, we'll call him a steward. He's like a CPA. He's his bookkeeper. Now, the steward is in charge, is directly in charge of all of this guy's investments, okay? The retirement portfolio, uh, the, the kids' college fund, everything. He's in charge of all of it. And one day, this wealthy guy realizes that his steward that he's hired is really bad at his job. Now, it doesn't say that the steward is a thief or that he's embezzling money. It just says that he isn't really investing very well. Uh, He's just flat out bad at his job. So the boss uh, starts to do some kind of audit, right? He calls in an outsider to do an objective evaluation of where his money is, and it confirms, yep, you hired the wrong guy. So he calls in the steward, this master, and he fires him on the spot. He says, go get the books, bring them back to me, and then get out because you're fired. Now, the steward doesn't say anything. He leaves dejected, I would imagine. 
on the way to get the books, he realizes just how desperate his situation is at this point. He is not going to find another job. He's not going to get a good reference from his boss. And he begins to think, okay, I'm too wimpy for manual labor, and I'm too proud to beg. And frankly, you know, he doesn't, have much of a, he doesn't really have a good sob story for begging. Hey, I was really bad at my job. Could you, could you give me some money? Uh, no one's going to give that guy money. But as he's, as he's going over his options in his mind, a light turns on. And he thinks, okay, I've got one more play to make. So he calls in all the people that owe his boss money. And keep in mind that as far as they know, he hasn't been fired yet, okay? He still represents his boss as far as they know. And for every person he calls in, he slashes their debt. So he says, okay, you owe 100000 you know, make it 50000 write it down. You owe 50000 make it 40000 write it down. I mean, everyone here, right, probably has some debt, maybe on a house or on a loan or for, for school, on a credit card, something. Imagine if your, your credit agency, your loan agency called you up and said, listen, we're feeling really generous today. Take your bill, take what you owe and cut it in half. How does that sound? You say, that's awesome. That's great. Now imagine if the person on the other end of the line said, I'm really glad you feel that way. My name is Jeff, and I need a job. That's exactly what this steward is doing. And all the while, he realizes that his, while his boss is losing money, right, as he slashes his debt, he, the steward, is gaining friends, is gaining a reputation in the community. And so when he finally turns in the books to his boss, and his boss sees what he's done, uh, the, the rich man has, has really one of two options. He can go back to the people that owe him money, his business partners, and say, listen, I fired this guy. He lied to you. You actually owe me the full amount. And anger them. Or he can let them stand and allow the steward to walk away scot-free with a new job with his new friends that he just made. And so the wealthy man, at the end of the story, he has to tip his hat to this clever steward because he acted so shrewdly is the word that's used. He acted so shrewdly. And then Jesus says basically this. This this is what he takes away from the story. He says that steward was onto something. I wish my disciples acted a little more like him in how they dealt with money. And the disciples, I'm sure, who Jesus is addressing and interpreters ever since are like, wait, what? What, what is praiseworthy about this guy? He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a cheater. But you know what he's not? He's not confused. He is not ill-informed. He's not apathetic. He's not resigned to his situation. He understands, the steward, for all of his faults, and there are many of them, but he understands exactly the reality of his desperate situation. He's got all the facts in place. He knows better than anyone in the, in the whole story what is really going on. And he is dealing radically with money in light of those facts, in light of that reality. He gets it. Time is running out. If I do not deal radically with my master's money, I'm done. I'm finished. And that is the essence of what the Bible means when it, call, when it says shrewd. This is not the first time Jesus calls Christians to be shrewd in light of the times. Shrewdness is swift, decisive action in light of the facts of the situation. That's what shrewdness is. Jesus says, in essence, in verse 8, right? This is his big takeaway from the story. I wish that my followers, 
the sons of light is what he calls them. I wish they acted with the kind of shrewdness about their money that this steward, this son of the world, this son of this age did. So Jesus is saying, as clearly as this steward's ethics are off, his shrewdness is on. And when we understand shrewdness that way, Jesus' point begins to make a lot more sense. Because as followers of Jesus, the people he's addressing, we are supposed to have the facts about money. We should know better than anyone exactly what money is, exactly what it can do, and exactly what it can't do. And we're supposed to live radically with it in light of those facts, in light of that reality. People should sit up and take notice of the way we use our money. Because we have the information. We have the secrets. We have the facts. Jesus is saying, as far as the world is concerned, you are insider traders in how you use your money. So act like it. Now, some of you are thinking right now, I'm a Christian and I don't have any secrets of success with money, so I have no clue what you're talking about. And that makes sense. I imagine the disciples, when they heard this, felt the same way. So Jesus, in verses 9 to 13, he begins to draw out the facts about money that we're all supposed to remember as Christians, that we all must know. And so for the rest of our time together, we're going to talk about these facts as Jesus presents them. There's four of them. And please write these down, these four facts. This is what we're going to do the rest of our time together. And they all come from this parable. Fact number one, that all Christians must know about money. Fact number one, God is the only rich person in the entire universe. God is the only rich person in the entire universe. Just like in the parable that Jesus told, there are really only two types of people in the universe. There's the rich man and there's everybody else. In this parable, all of the money revolves around the rich man. Did you notice that? Somebody either is paying him money, owes him money, or is managing his money. It's all about him, period. God is the rich man. We are the stewards. This is the most basic fact that Jesus teaches about money. God owns it all. And as simple as that sounds, thinking about money that way has profound implications on our lives. And not only on our, on our money, but everything you think you have, everything you think you've done, everything you think you've earned belongs to him. All your stuff is his, your car, your house, your gadgets, your pots and pans, the pen you're writing with right now, because none of it's here without him creating it. And that means that all of your abilities are his, your brains, your good looks, your work ethic, your ability with numbers, or your way with words, or your beautiful singing voice, whatever it is for you, you don't have it unless he gives it to you. And that means that all your accomplishments, your greatest successes, your best stories are his. The job you have, the education you got, the deal you brokered, the award you won, the grade you received, the business you built, the ideas you have, all of it, all of it, belongs to him. And that must radically change the way we look at our money. This fact changes everything. And the question for us as Christians cannot be in a situation that involves our money, what does God want me to do with my money in this situation? That is not the question. The question must be, what does God want me to do with his money in this situation? 
And there is a tremendous difference. There is a profound difference between those two questions, is there not? Jesus says, before we can talk about what to do with money, you have to understand that you have rights to none of it if you're a Christian. And this leads to fact number two. Fact number two. God owns it all, so we are simply stewards of God's money. We are stewards of God's money. All God's resources, including money, they're on loan to us. And by his grace and design, God decided to give, he decided to entrust those things to you for you to make decisions about what to do with it and where to put it, where to invest it. Now notice, I did not say God gives us his money because he doesn't. He entrusts you with it. He entrusts you with these resources. We are simply stewards, much as this steward in our parable was. He didn't own any of that money. But if we can grasp that, if we can believe that, that it doesn't belong to us, there comes a tremendous freedom to use our money, to use our possessions in ways that honor God for his purposes. And suddenly the fear and anxiety that money brings, and we've all felt it, regardless of how much you make, the fear and anxiety that money brings into your life disappears. Because we could never control it anyway. It was never ours in the first place. Now Jesus teaches elsewhere that when this When this anxiety disappears, it is replaced by a joy that can only come from giving our resources away. Martin Seligman, he's a UPenn professor of psychology. Um, He recently gave his class of PhD students an interesting assignment. He said, this week, you need to do two things. You need to go out and do one, one pleasurable act, so something that you like, eating ice cream, watch your favorite movie, whatever that is, go out and do that this week. But you've also got to do one generous act. Volunteer at a retirement home, something like this. You've got to do both this week. And then write, write about your impressions after you've done them both. And Seligman says, he's not, not a Christian. He says, the results were life-changing for these students. The afterglow of the pleasurable activity paled in comparison with the effects of the kind, generous action. Now, what researchers have spent decades discovering, like Solomon, Jesus unveiled his disciples 2,000 years ago, and he put it this way. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that does not mean it is more religious to give. It does not mean it is more spiritual to give, as if you give whether you enjoy it or not. It's not about enjoying. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you are like God, every human being. And he gives, his resource, he gives his resources freely, and his joy in doing so can be yours. An ocean of joy, infinite joy, if you give generously as he does. That's what Jesus means by that. The steward in our story only proves the point further. By giving away his boss's money, he blesses his community, he releases them from debt. And at the same time, he finds himself in a better position. Now, I realize that in the story He does it in a sinful way. But I assure you that our God is more than happy to let you give his wealth away, to make friends, to draw people to him. He's more than happy for you to do that. Because nobody is repelled by generosity. Nobody. You you never met anyone where you said, oh, they're too generous, I just can't stand being around them, right? Generosity is the most powerful tool Christians have in spreading God's kingdom. It is the most powerful tool. 
It is not apologetics, as good as those are. It is not wise words. It is not quoting scripture at people, as helpful as that can be. The most powerful thing we can do is present a generous God with our generous life and introduce people to him that way. More than that, money is never an end in and of itself in God's kingdom. It is always a means to another more lasting, more permanent end or goal. Because God understands, and we have to understand this too, God understands that earthly money is temporary. But the people who can be blessed by its wise use are not. And that leads us to our our third fact. Money is destined for failure. Money is destined for failure. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, make friends for yourselves with worldly wealth. Some of your translations may say unrighteous wealth. It just means, this, this worldly is a better translation. It means money associated with this world. Make, for your, make friends for yourselves with worldly wealth so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, money is a temporary commodity, says Jesus. And he doesn't develop that point here, but he does elsewhere. In Matthew chapter 6, Starting in verse 19, Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and they do not steal. Now notice, when Jesus warns his followers not to store up treasures on earth, he doesn't say it's because they are bad. He says it's because they do not last. They do not last. And notice again, it is not that earthly wealth might be lost for Jesus, it's that it will be lost. Always, in every case, either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die. There are no exceptions. Uh, John Ortberg, he's a Christian author, he wrote a book about wealth and possessions. And uh, he shares this story in, in his book about his grandmother, Golda, and how she taught him to play the game Monopoly. It's a great game. And he talks about how she was just a master at this game, just always beat him. He couldn't ever beat her. Uh, And it was so frustrating to him, he spent an entire summer just practicing Monopoly, so that by the end, he finally had this epic showdown with Golda, his grandmother, Um, and he finally beat her. And here's here's how he describes that event. He says, I looked at my grandmother, this woman who had taught me how to play, And she was an old lady by now. She was a widow. She had raised my mother. She loved my mother. She loved me. And I took everything she had. (laughs) I destroyed her financially and psychologically. I watched her give up her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. And it was the greatest moment in my life. (laughs) But she had one more thing to teach me. All those hotels, all those houses, all that property, boardwalk, park place, the railroads, the utility companies, all those thousands of dollars I had accumulated. My grandmother said of them, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. (laughs) That's the name of his book, by the way. Life is obviously more than a Monopoly game. But the stuff we acquire, okay, at the end of the day, it goes back in the box. You can't take it with you. You just can't. As Christians, we have insider information 
about the game, don't we? We know Jesus is returning. We know that he wins. We know that our money has a small window of significance before it will not mean anything anymore. As Jim Elliott so wisely put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So use wealth shrewdly to invest in things that will last. That's Jesus' point. Things like other people in need, things like institutions that seek the common good of our communities, things like a Thanksgiving collection, an Operation Christmas Child, things that make a difference for people, things like excellent works of art that highlight God's beauty and his goodness to a world that doesn't know him, things that matter. And that list could go on and on. The point is, invest shrewdly. Alfred Nobel uh, was a Swedish chemist in the 19th century who made his fortune on inventing and mass-producing dynamite. And near the end of his own life, uh, before he died, his brother died in France. And uh, Alfred, wanting to to, to read about his brother, to see, see what happened, um, get more information. He, he, he got an obituary from a local French newspaper where his brother had died. And as he began reading this obituary, to his dismay, he realized it wasn't about his brother, it was about him. And the editor of this newspaper had, had read his, his name and confused him for his brother and assumed that he, the wealthy brother, had died. And the title of the obituary that he was reading was called, The Merchant of Death is Dead. And the article highlighted how Alfred had, made, had gotten rich by helping people kill one another with his product. And so uh, Alfred, in that moment, he vowed uh, to use his wealth to change his legacy and make a difference in the world. And so he donated more than $9 million, which is still a lot of money. It was an incredible amount of money back then. Um, he donated this money to fund awards that would uh, benefit those who were, who were pursuing the common good for humanity with excellence. And that award was eventually renamed, and we know it today as the Nobel Peace Prize. Like Nobel, Jesus is saying, Christians, you've read the obituary. You know what is coming. You've been given a sneak peek into the hidden realities of the universe. Money goes back in the box. You know that. Use it for something that does not Now, as great as that sounds, and my guess is that most people in this room agree with what's been said so far. Yes, money can't buy happiness. Yes, money is temporary. Most of us probably agree with that, as great as it sounds. But why do we so rarely live it out? Why is it so easy to say that and yet our lives betray that we still love money? We still trust it more than anything. Why is this so hard? And I have a theory. I think it's because Most of us feel that when we have enough, when we finally have enough, then we can take Jesus seriously. If we just get a little more cushion, a little more margin, then we will give generously and we can invest wisely as he tells us to do. But the problem with that is that we are wrong. We won't. Because the biggest obstacle, I think, for all of us investing this money wisely it's not that we don't have enough. It's that we never will feel that we, that we will. We will never have enough. We'll never feel like we have enough. It's not that we don't have enough. It's that we never feel like we have enough. Money controls us so powerfully. 
We say we'll give and we have the margin, but that margin never seems to come. And slowly but surely, and we, pro- we didn't even feel it happening, that money became our security blanket. That money became our significance. It became our way of feeling important. It became our way of feeling free to do what we want. It became our way of feeling safe in this world. And we didn't even sense it happening. In other words, money so easily becomes our God. And this is our last fact, fact number four. Money is a terrible God. Jesus, he puts it bluntly in verse 13. He says, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. And this word serve is used of slaves who serve a king. Jesus is saying, money and God cannot both be king. Your allegiance to one will always outweigh, will always inform, will always define your allegiance to the other. Either God is your God or money is, period. And you know that money is your God if you feel it is your ultimate security, if you feel safe only when you have enough, if you feel anxious and worried about your money constantly. It's always on your mind. And money is your God if it is where you find your ultimate significance, if the thought of not having enough terrifies you, if you constantly find yourself comparing your stuff to those around you and your bank account, if you are jealous of those who have more than you and you feel superior to those who have less. And money is your God if, you, if it is your ultimate means of satisfaction, if all that gets you through the day is your next great meal, is your next great vacation, is your next new toy. That isn't to say that we don't enjoy good things. That's not what Jesus is saying. But how easily the enjoyment slips into worship if we are not careful. Now, all three of these things that I've mentioned, security, significance, satisfaction, the Bible summarizes all three of these concepts with one word. It's called salvation. Salvation. Many of us believe in our heart of hearts that money will save us. Now, this parable teaches, and Jesus teaches, that that is patently false, not true. And our common experience as human beings proves the point. We are all of us, as we move around in the busyness of life, if we get caught up in the busyness of every day, we are all of us going to find that one day a trap door is going to open underneath us. We are going to fall through. And that trap door is called death. And we are either falling into everlasting arms of God or into oblivion. And yet, we live as if another thousand dollars, another million dollars, another trip to Tahiti, whatever it is, is going to make a difference in that reality. And at the end of the day, money is completely unable to save you from death, from tragedy, or from brokenness in your life. Over the things that really matter, money has no power at all. And more than that, it does not deliver on any real or lasting happiness. In fact, when money becomes God, it sucks the joy out of everything else that life has to offer. Because suddenly nothing else matters if your bank account isn't where it needs to be. Your family, your friends, your job, none of it matters. You can't even think about it. Now God, on the other hand, when you follow him, if you follow him, he enriches every part of your life. 
If you follow him, you're free to love your family deeply. You're free to work with excellence. You are free to help people around you because your significance, your security, your satisfaction are hidden in God. They're untouchable where rust and moth and thief cannot destroy. I said earlier that no one in history has a better grasp on wealth than Jesus. And here's what I meant. In the beginning, the Bible teaches us, in the beginning, Jesus created everything. By the word of his mouth, he created everything. Jesus is the truly rich man. And yet, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you and I, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave it all up for you and for me. When is the last time your money, when is the last time your wealth, your possessions, gave up anything for you? For us, we wrestle with questions about our money and whether we should, our, our wealth, about whether, you know, whether we upgrade our cable package or not. For Jesus, he decided between the riches of the universe, between the power of the stars in his hand, between speaking into being anything he could dream of. He chose between that and becoming a human being, the son of a poor carpenter, between being an innocent man condemned for no crime that he committed, being tortured to death on a cross. That was his decision. And he, gave, he chose the cross. He gave it all up for you and for me. And when you reflect on that, what kind of God is money compared to that? You want real riches? You want real power? You want real significance, says Jesus? You want real glory? And follow me. And all of those things will be added to you and more. Jesus says, be rich toward God. Be rich toward God because he is and was and always will be rich toward you. Let's pray. Father, for the gift of your son, for the riches you poured out for our sake, we are humbled and we are thankful. Father, as we reflect on that, empower us by your spirit to give generously, to mimic you in who you are, to be blessed in our giving, or don't let us forget the facts of money. We pray all these things, we ask all these things, we give thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.